Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And again, this may be unfamiliar to you. Thank you so much for coming this evening. If you're new to uh, church or whatever, but if you could just turn uh, back to the reading we had so well read for us, 1 Thessalonians 1, this letter written by Paul the Apostle in 4950 AD to this little church in Thessalonica he'd helped to found. That'd be a great help, so thank you for doing that. And I'm just going to try and explain a little bit from this passage. As I come to do that, let me say a prayer. It's my custom to pray. I'm going to ask that God will help me speak clearly. I'm going to ask that God will address you in the depths of your soul. Let me pray. Father God, thank you very much for the Bible. Please help me to speak clearly from it. Please may we understand what Christ has done. And we dare to ask, Father, that you would address each one of us in the very depths of our soul. And indeed, that we'd remember what is said from the Bible this evening all our lives. We ask this for our sake and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In my family, we have got the most incredibly immature ritual of throwing each other into water wherever it may be found. So whatever the time of year it is, spring, summer, autumn or winter, whatever the type of water, sea, stream, river or pool, the rule is if there's water, someone has to go in which is the reason we're all so overweight, to avoid ourselves being thrown in. Anyway, this infantile uh, custom came to a head four or five years ago on New Year's Day when my older brother, who was 45, had three kids, pushed me into a river on New Year's Day in Surrey. I don't know if you've got an older brother like mine. He's 95% Christian and 5% animal, and you're never sure when the animal's going to emerge. It's terrifying doing life with him. So I'm standing, New Year's Day, looking down into this river. We'd met at this sort of pub for lunch. His two boys, aged six and eight, are either side of me, and the next thing I know, I'm falling in. And as you're falling in, you know this feeling. You think, this isn't happening. He hasn't done this. And I hit the water, and it was perishingly cold. I went right in, I went right under. I just couldn't believe it. And I came back up, and because I'm a clergyman and a Christian and a forgiving man, I went straight up the bank and took him in. Now, just to say, (laughs) if you're taking people into water, the key is to sacrifice yourself. If you sacrifice yourself, you can take anyone in. So we both went in, my car keys fell out of my pocket, and it wasn't a great start to the new year. Anyway, it didn't break the water habit, and six months later, I was in Sydney doing a placement And on a day off, the clergyman I was with took me to Botany Bay. And it was the most beautiful day. The sun was bouncing off the water. It was crystal blue. It was calm as a mill pond. And I thought, well, I've got to go in. Well, I thought about throwing the guy I was there in. He was 70 years old. I thought, I can't do that. So I thought, I'll go in myself. (laughs) So I stripped off to my boxer shorts, which is a terrible sight, by the way, because I've now got a furniture problem. My chest is in my drawers nowadays. (laughs) But I stripped off to my boxer shorts, and I was just walking into the water... And this Aussie guy shouted, what are you doing? I said, what do you think I'm doing? I'm going for a swim. He said, don't be ridiculous. I said, you don't be ridiculous. It's a lovely day. There's no one here. I'm just going to nip in. He said, what about those signs? And I looked around, and there were two massive signs with with jaws clamping together saying, danger, sharks, no swimming. And with all the dignity I could muster in a pair of Marks and Spencer's boxer shorts, I said to him, I'll be fine. He said, listen, mate. 200 Australians have been killed by sharks. You've got to work out whether those signs are there to save you or to ruin your day. You're of age, you decide. And with that, he walked off down the beach, and I rather sheepishly put my clothes back on and toddled back off to him. 
Now, just as we come to today, and thank you for coming this evening, I want to say there's a massive danger sign in this passage. And all I want to do is hold it up before you and say, do you think it's reality, the title we've got tonight? What do you make of the danger sign? And to some people, this will be, as you look at it, just a real manipulative power statement. You're thinking, oh yeah, this is about power. He's doing this to get control. But to other people, can I say, I think it's the most loving warning you can ever hear in your life. So I'll just leave it with you. But it's a massive danger sign. Is it a loving warning or is it something desperately offensive? Is it there to ruin your day or to save your life? What do you think? Well, the danger sign is the last three words of the passage. Can we have a look down as as we see here? Do you see the danger sign? Here it is. The coming wrath. The coming wrath. Ladies and gentlemen, God's wrath is his settled, controlled, just personal hostility to evil. So what this passage is saying, I, I make no apology for this, is that God is going to judge all that is wrong in his world. This morning I heard about a family, a Christian family, who've been slaughtered in the Middle East. God is going to judge that. Actually, it doesn't matter that they're Christian, whatever the family was. But God will judge it. He's not indifferent as to how I treat you or how you treat me or how we treat his world. Now, just as we see that word wrath, I think a lot of us will see it and it will associate it perhaps with a volcanic rage that someone maybe in our family used to control the family. So someone flies off the handle and it's the way they get control. Can I say, that's not what's going on here. And I'm very sorry if that's how you were treated at home with someone using temper in that way. I've seen that. But can I say that's not what's going here. It's his settled, controlled, personal hostility to evil. It means that God is not like some benevolent grandfather who leans back as the grandchildren are mucking around and says, oh, well, whatever's damaged, just sweep it under the the carpet. No, God cares passionately about his world. And as I say that, there's some people here who've been treated dreadfully by others, and I want to say God cares. And there's been no justice, there's been no recourse, and they've torpedoed your life or the life of those you love. And I want to say, God cares. There's a day of judgment. There's a day when God will act in judgment in a way that's completely comprehensive. So the Bible says, here's the danger sign, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, oh my goodness, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, do you know, again, coming from a tobacco home where I just didn't get Christian faith at all, it took me a long time to get this, that in the Bible, God's judgment is not set up in contrast to God's goodness. In the Bible, God's judgment is proof he's good. He's good because he judges, because he says, I care about evil. I've got a twin sister. Actually, it's why I'm so sensitive to women. I was in the womb with a girl. And um, I've got this twin sister... And uh, for 14 years, she worked as a missionary in South Africa um, among, uh, among, in the townships among HIV-AIDS patients. I tell you, the suffering and death and pain she saw in a week is more than I'll see in a lifetime. I don't know how she did it. But a couple came to her in the township where she worked in Port Elizabeth. And they said to her, our daughter was raped and murdered. The boy that did it was out of prison after 18 months. We thought our little girl was worth more than that. And as you hear that, doesn't something rise up inside you and say, well, that's right. 
That's appalling. And it may not rise up inside you, but can I tell you, it does rise up inside the creator of that little girl, and he is not apathetic as to what happened. My dad, as I just said, worked in Chile in South America during the 1960s growing tobacco, and he told me that on Hitler's birthday, you could drive up into the Andes Mountains and there would be Nazis publicly celebrating Hitler's birthday, bouncing their children or grandchildren up and down on their knees. Here are other people's grandchildren. This is a picture of Auschwitz I got when I, I went there in Poland. They're going to the gas chambers. It's a good thing there's a, there's a judgment to come. At those people absolutely unashamedly celebrating Hitler's birthday, ex-Nazis. There's a judgment to come. But actually, here's the issue. What about me? And the Lord Jesus Christ, I think he was the most loving man that ever lived. Yet this is what he said when he referred to this judgment to come. What do you make of this? Can I put up the warning sign here? So here's the man who in the Sermon on the Mount said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And then as he was being judicially murdered, cried out for the people killing him, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. That compassion, even for his murderers, and yet he says this. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friend, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. So the Bible does speak of a place called hell where wrongdoing will be paid for. Do you know, I was speaking about this at All Souls, the church I work at London, and and there was an elderly American man, this was years ago at the door, after I'd given a sermon on a similar passage, and he was shaking with rage after the service, and he said this to me, he said, young man, I hate people, I hate people who try and frighten me with regard to God. And I thought of exactly the right answer to him six hours later. Are you like that? Six hours later, I got it. What I should have said, I was a bit stuffed at the time, but what I should have said was, sir, the issue is not have I tried to frighten you? But is there anything to fear? And can I say, personally, when I just think about my life and I read of God's wrath, his settled, just, controlled, personal hostility to evil, it makes me very nervous. I'm not even mentioning your life. I'm saying my life. It makes me nervous that everything will be uncovered. Terrified, in fact. And desperately embarrassed. Well, in AD 49, when the Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, went to Thessalonica with his colleagues Silas, Timothy, and Dr. Luke, actually, wonderfully, the Thessalonians did believe this warning sign as he preached it, but it wasn't all he said. Have a look back down to this little uh, last eight words of this passage, verse 10 in Thessalonians. Can you see what it says? Because it says and speaks of Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So we move point one from wrath, and I don't know what you make of that. Can I leave that with you? But secondly, we move to rescue. He rescues us from the coming wrath. So there's no doubt that when Paul went to Thessalonica, he spoke about the death of Jesus, and he explained that the crucifixion was no ordinary death. I don't know what you see as you look at the cross. This man hanging on a cross, what do you make of it? Paul said it's no ordinary death. So as Jesus described his own death, he said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He says, the reason why my father loves me is because I lay down my life for the sheep. Yet again, he says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. This time, this means that for every time you and I have said no to God, we've just said no, maybe for weeks, months, years, decades, we've ignored him. Or maybe, actually, if you're like me and a Christian here this week, you've just said, yes, I know what the Bible says, God, and I'm saying no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to think about that person. I'm not going to to act in the way I should. No. For every time we've done that, we've said no to God, this says that God's wrath fell, his anger fell onto Jesus. So it's as though I'm in the Titanic and the cross is the lifeboat. We're going to hit this iceberg of God's judgment and yet there is a lifeboat and it's all about what Christ has done. I don't know if you can remember the cry that rang out that Good Friday as Jesus was dying on the cross. He was up on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words that echo down history. Now, if you hear those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a cry of physical agony, though he was in physical agony. We get the word excruciating, agony, from, uh, from the Latin word crook's cross. There were 60 million slaves in the ancient world, and this is how you kept them in order. You crucified them. So uh, a, a guy would see a fellow slave being crucified. He'd think, well, whatever my lot, rebellion's not worth it. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a cry of physical agony. It's a cry of relational agony. Jesus is crying out, God, why have you thrown me out? Why have you rejected me? After Dad grew tobacco in uh, Chile, we went to Africa, and he grew tobacco there, and there was no children's TV, so I spent my time as a little boy mucking around, and I had two hobbies as a little boy, stamp collecting and butterflies, and can I say, in Africa, both are amazing, the stamps and the butterflies, and for both those hobbies, I needed one of these, a magnifying glass, but I soon found as a little boy in Africa that making little things bigger was not all a magnifying glass could do. I found that if you took one of these into the midday sun, the possibilities were endless. (laughs) I found that you could set alight a leaf or a piece of newspaper or even the gardener's hut. I found that you could burn patterns on fences and trees. And best of all, I found, if you held your twin sister down, you could scare the living daylights out of her with one of these. That was before I thought of ordination into the Anglican church. You see, you can take a magnifying glass and focus the rays of the sun into such intensity that it burns things. Well, imagine this. Imagine a massive moral magnifying glass the size of this church. Imagine it. Bigger than this room. And imagine, it, imagine that through it are past, not the sun's rays, but God's righteous anger at the lust, the jealousy the hatred, the bitterness, the gossip, the self-centeredness, the way I've treated God in my heart. Again, I'm not even talking about yours. But imagine all that comes down, down, down until with terrible intensity it hits one man at one point in history so that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is how Jesus, can we see our, our verse here, rescues us from the coming wrath. That's how he does it. So 700 years before, the prophet Isaiah looks ahead to this moment and he says, I praise you, O Lord, although you are angry with me, your anger has been turned away. 
So as I see Jesus dying on the cross, it's not a Galilean carpenter dying. He dies there in my place, absorbing into himself all God's righteous anger at my wrongdoing. It's amazing love. It's staggering. And this is why the night before he died, I don't know if you know this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, he falls to the ground, and he sweats droplets of blood, and he prays, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. What was the cup? It was the cup of God's wrath as Jesus rescued us on Good Friday from that anger. As he saves me from hell, through the cross, for heaven. It's a staggering thing. And if you're a Christian here this evening, can I ask, are you grateful for that? A number of years ago, I was really struggling in my ministry, and I went and saw that, actually, that Australian clergyman. I was on the beach with a guy called John Chapman. And he was in London, and I went through what was wrong in my life and ministry for about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. I went on about it. And gradually, his Australian lip curled with disdain at this whinging pom. And as I finished and was waiting for him to say something nice, he said to me, Rico, mate, I had a friend like you, clergyman like you and I, and he committed suicide. And if I may say, you're not unlike him. (laughs) I said, what? He said, it's quite obvious listening to you. There's no thanksgiving in your life. He said, do you ever kneel by your bed and give thanks? He said, can I ask you to go away and kneel by your bed and give thanks for what God has done and start with what he's done in sending his son to die. And do you know, that habit of kneeling by my bed morning and night and giving thanks, changed my life. Changed my life. The gratitude that I was overwhelmed with. And If you're not in a great place, Christian-wise, can I say, has your heart hardened to the wonder of this forgiveness? Now, again, if you're someone here who's come this evening, oh, it's great you've come. But actually, can I take you ahead to the Day of Judgment... And on the day of judgment, can I ask you, where will your trust be focused? So here's my question. If you were to die tonight and God said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you reply? So you're suddenly rocketed into the judgment and and, and you're standing before God, the end of your life. We don't know when it will be. And he says, why should I let you into heaven? Just in in your mind's eye, could you just say, this is what I'd say. What would you say? Where would your trust be focused? I mean, would you say, for example, now this is often what people say, would you say, look, God, I've been good enough. I mean, I I don't steal. I keep the Ten Commandments. I give to charity. I've not been a murderer or a rapist or a dentist or a traffic warden. I'm not one of those evil people. Just to say, by the way, if you're a dentist, I'm sorry. If you're a traffic warden, you might want to see me afterwards. (laughs) I I, I don't lie. One person said to me, honestly, in all honesty, with with eyes welling up, they said, Rico, I give blood. I'm a blood donor. That's why I should be let in. Or you might say, oh, do you know, I'm I'm not just moral. I'm religious too. I mean, I go to church. I don't just go to church. I'm a member of the Church of England. You know that, don't you? Why is it the Anglicans will be first in heaven? Because it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. That's us. That's the Anglican. Just to say, if you're not an Anglican, don't come near us. We're hopeless. Hopeless. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed by a bishop. Oh, a bishop confirmed me, you know. That's why I'll be led into heaven. I pray. I, I read the Bible. And on it goes. I go to communion. I watch songs of praise. I've had people say that. Now, can I say, where is your trust focused? 
if it's here, can I say these things will do you no good at all? These are like, they're good things. But they're like sticking plaster on a gaping wound. I mean, if your goodness could get you accepted by God, why did he send his son to die? Why did he do that? If being good is good enough. Oh, that's the argument I constantly have in my beloved family. Why did he send him to die if your goodness can get you in? So again, can I ask, where is your trust focused? Is it in your performance or Christ's performance? And the wonder of the Christian faith is, I'm trusting in what Christ did as he pays in death and blood and rescues me from the coming wrath. A number of years ago, I was playing rugby in Bristol against a club side called Ding's Crusaders. And I arrived at the Ding's ground and I saw my opposite number. He was massive. He was built like an outside toilet. Honestly, you look at a guy like that and you think, what does his mother look like? I mean, the bloke was vast. I thought, this is going to be desperate. He was huge. And he had a number three on his back, so I knew he was opposite me. But he wasn't warming up at all. I thought, well, I wonder why. And I walked around a bit, and I found that he was holding a tiny baby boy in his arms. And I thought, well, maybe he's not playing. Maybe he's babysitting. Maybe his mother's playing. I didn't know. (laughs) Just before kickoff, he handed this baby across. He walked onto the field. He ripped me limb from limb. Half time, went straight back to the baby boy. Second half, came back on, threw me around like straw in the wind. As the final whistle went, that baby boy was back in the man's arms. There was no question who the father was. There was no question who the son was. I'd like to have seen anyone lay a finger on that little boy. It'd have been amusing to behold the result. Now, here's the issue. Do you think God loved his son, Jesus Christ, any less than that? Yet he sent him on Good Friday to die so that you could be forgiven. And that's the most important fact at the heart of the universe. What do you make of it? There's a course Christianity Explored at the moment. If that's new to you, please go and investigate it. Ask your questions. Well, I'm just going to finish now, but I just want to say the third point as we finish, because we've had wrath. We've had rescue. Two R's, wrath and rescue. Our third R, right response. You see, the Thessalonians correctly responded. Have a look down at verse 7. Can we see as we look down? And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. The Lord's message ran out from you, not only in Macedonian Archaea, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. Paul's thrilled at the way that the Thessalonians responded to his preaching. For they themselves report what reception you gave us. Now, here's the issue. Here is the response. Let's finish with this. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Can you see they turned, they served, they waited. Now, the people of Thessalonica up to that point had been idol worshippers. So actually, they focused their prayers up on Mount Olympus, where the gods lived. And I guess they'd have prayed and focused up there. And I don't know where they were. I guess some would have been devout. Others would have been uncertain and sceptical. Others would have done it because it made their parents happy or their husband or wife happy. Others would have been bewildered and think, well, what am I doing? But wherever they were... After they heard about Jesus, after they heard, can you say verse 10, to opt and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. After they heard about Jesus, who didn't just die on Good Friday, he was raised on Easter Day. After they heard about that, they said, I've been mistaken. 
This is Jesus who said to a dead girl, Talitha, come, and she was raised from the dead. This is Jesus who flattened a storm. And actually, can I say, non-Christian sources speak of his power. Non-Christian sources. And they, they, they heard about what he'd done and how he died on Good Friday for them, how he died on the cross. And they said, I've been mistaken. I've got to change. And do you see what they had to do? Can you look down? Verse, verse 9, halfway through, they tell how you turn to God from idols. Now, oh, that sounds so old-fashioned. What's an idol? An idol's a made-up God. Uh, you know, it's not just some sort of altar. I mean, that, that, some people may have those in, in their homes, but actually, it's a made-up God. So it causes me to ask you, what are you living for? An idol could be status. It could be a desire to be well thought of, to have a hassle-free life. But I, I don't know what it is. But let me get closer. Not just what are you living for. Here, we'll nail an idol now. What's the most important thing in your life? And it could be a very good thing, but it's become a God thing. Academic success, good thing, but it's become God. The children, good thing, but they've become God. Providing for my family, a good thing, it's become God. Making my parents happy, good thing, but it's become God. What's the most important thing? Just getting enough money to go on holiday. Whatever. But it's become a God thing. And can I say, if as I asked you, what's the most important thing in your life? Your answer, it could be a person. If your answer doesn't settle in the person of Jesus Christ, you've got an idol. Now for me, can I tell you what my idol was? Me! I was my idol. I was, without question, the most important thing in the world. It re really... And I had to turn around as I heard this message in my late teens and go, Lord Jesus, you give me each breath. You died for me. You, you were raised. Lord Jesus, actually, you'll come again to judge the world, which is a good thing. Lord Jesus, please help me to stop being at the center myself and put you at the center. And can I ask you as I close now, have you done that? Do you know, he died on the cross he lived an amazing life. He gives us each breath. He can be trusted to lead us. Have you done what the Thessalonians did, which was turn from idols to serve the living God, to wait for him to come again? Have you done it? Now, there'll be some here who said, look, Rico, you've thrown out a whole bunch of stuff I've never thought about. Come to Christianity Explored. If you're a student, Come to, to, to the five nights of talks we've got coming. Come, come tomorrow night. It'd be lovely to see you. So if it's just all new, please don't, don't lock this away. Please unpack it. In fact, I've, I've got a book I'd, I'd love to give you to unpack it. I, I wrote it for rugby players, so no word is longer than five letters. They're bits to color in. It'd be perfect for rugby players. But, but come, and, come, and get the, come and get, I'd love to take your name address, send the book to you. But actually, there'll be one or two here who say, look, I know this is true. I know it's true, and I haven't done it. And I'm going to pray, end with a prayer now that just enables you to do what the Thessalonians did. Once they, they realized what Christ has done, and they said, I'm not going to trust in my performance but his, and to turn from idols and to follow him. And for one or two, I think that'll be right. So here's a prayer, and I'm going to say it once. And if after I've said it, you can say, do you know, 
I'm absolutely aligned with that, I want to do it, then please echo it in your own heart the second time I say it. If you're saying, gosh, this is all, there's loads here I've got to work out, get a book, come to Christianity Explored. But here's the prayer, and for one or two, I, I, I reckon it'll be right. Here it is. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are God and have the right to control my life. Let me read through it. I've rebelled against you, sinning in thought, word, and deed, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes deliberately. I'm sorry for the way I've lived and ask you to forgive me. As best I can, I want to turn away from rebellion and obey you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. Please come into my life and take complete control of it so I can be ready for your return. Well, if that's right for you, then I'm going to pray it phrase by phrase now, and please just repeat it in your own heart. So this is how to become a Christian, and can I plead with you to to take advantage of this moment? Here it is again. Let me say it slowly. Please echo it if it's right for you to respond. If not, thanks for coming. Please bear with me just as I pray. So here it is. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are God and have the right to control my life. I've rebelled against you, sinning in thought, word, and deed, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes deliberately. I'm sorry for the way I've lived and ask you to forgive me. As best I can, I want to turn away from rebellion and obey you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. Please come into my life and take complete control of it so I can be ready for your return. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you've prayed that prayer, I'd love to see you afterwards. If you want to have details of the course, again, I'd love to see you send you a book. Thanks very much.